Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If you have been with us during the season of Lent, you know that we have been following Luke's road story of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem uh, with the disciples. Luke sets apart a really big part of his gospel for this road story, and I think he does it as a way of showing us that following Jesus is not a, a static thing. Following Jesus is not a decision that we once made. Um, To follow Jesus means that we will be on a journey with him our whole lives. To be following Jesus means that we will always be following him somewhere. And as we have seen at each of these stops so far along the way, um, we have seen that Jesus doesn't just call us to follow him. He tells us how to follow him, what it will look like in our lives if we follow him. And sometimes people see what it is that he is trying to say, And other times they don't see what it is that he's trying to say. And we're meant to learn from both of these examples. And that's certainly true in the story that we're going to look at this morning when Jesus makes a stop near Jericho. So I'm going to read from Luke 18 for us, verses 31 through 43. And you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Luke 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang together that we would see your son Jesus here among us in all of his risen power. And so we ask, Father, that what what we sang, maybe even absentmindedly, that we would find it to be true. That you would, through this word that we have read together, that we'll talk about, that, that you would... Make yourself present to us in your Son, that you would show us his grace, that you would meet us in the places where we are, and that you would change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, for, uh, for about seven years, our family uh, had a trusty old Honda Odyssey. 
Uh, that is a minivan, in case you don't know uh, what a Honda Odyssey is. I'm not one of those folks who's too proud to admit to having a minivan. Um, gets the kids around from place to place. We've taken lots of road trip vacations in it with plenty of room for all of our gear. And uh, I'm not kidding when I say this, but one of the things that I liked best uh, about that Odyssey um, was the place where you put your sunglasses. Uh, it was right up in between the driver's seat and the passenger seat on the ceiling. And uh, if you were driving along and the sun came out and you needed a little bit of shade on your eyes, all you had to do was kind of mindlessly reach up and hit the button that was up there. And when you hit the button, this little compartment opened. And honestly, this is, this is what I think I like most about it. Um, that compartment wouldn't just pop open. It would open really slowly <laughs> to kind of reveal your perfectly stored sunglasses. <laughs> I know this might sound weird to some of you, but there was something really satisfying about that action. You know, there was something really satisfying about just seeing that slow, sophisticated opening. Sometimes I would press that button just to watch the thing open up. I did that for like seven years. Um, but that vehicle went the way of all vehicles. We had to replace it a little over a year ago. We still have a minivan, but it's not an odyssey. And even though we've had it for that long, even though we've had it for more than a year, it never, ever fails. When I'm driving along and the sun comes out and I need a little bit of shade on my eyes, I mindlessly reach up to that area between the driver's seat and the passenger seat to press the button for my sunglasses to slowly and sophisticatedly be revealed. But what actually happens is this weird little mirror drops down <laughs> um, because that's not where the sunglasses holder in the new van is. That's where the weird little mirror holder in the new, is, is in the new van. Um, but 10 times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, I hit that stupid button anyway. And I have not yet absorbed, even after more than a year, that things are different in this new vehicle. The sunglasses aren't in front of me. They're beside me. The compartment doesn't open slowly. It pops open, and the sunglasses normally fall out into my lap. Um, everything is backwards. Everything is reversed from what I expect. And at this point, I have no idea how long it's going to take me to get through my thick skull and become second nature to me. And I mention this because the story that we just read and heard together is all about things being backwards and out of place and unexpected. The story that we just read and heard together is all about reversals. The people in this story who should be able to see are, in fact, blind. And the one person in this story who shouldn't be able to see proves to have unparalleled sight. And at the center of all of this is a king who forgoes all of the usual kingly benefits like glory and might and power for their inverse, shame and weakness and suffering. And church, these kinds of reversals are at the heart of our faith. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us that following him means that we will learn to recognize these reversals for the incredibly good news that they are. And he wants us, 
He wants us to see them so that they become second nature to us, so that we don't just recognize them, but we begin to live them out ourselves. So at this point in the story, Jesus is being followed around by a considerable group of people. We don't know exactly how many, but it's clear that interest around Jesus and expectation around Jesus is swelling, in particular as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem. But in this moment, in this story, Jesus is not necessarily concerned with the larger crowd that's following him. He wants to say something to the twelve, to these ones that have been with him since the very beginning. So he calls them aside and he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, which, of course, they knew. Then Jesus says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And it is not hard. It is not hard at all to imagine when the disciples hear this, when the twelve hear this, that their eyes start widening and their heads begin nodding. And little grins start forming in the corner of their mouths. Because this all sounds really, really good to them. See, Jesus had used that term for himself that he used a lot, the Son of Man. And the disciples, they had heard this term for Jesus, the Son of Man. They'd heard it over and over and over again. They'd heard Jesus use that term for himself. They've thought about it, and they're not dumb. They know where it comes from. It comes from the book of Daniel. And the image that's used there is stunning. You can read about it in Daniel 7. Daniel the prophet has this vision of one like a Son of Man being presented before God. Daniel the prophet calls God the Ancient of Days, and he says the Ancient of Days gives to this Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And Daniel says this is a kingdom that will never end. And the disciples know this, and I don't know exactly how they imagined it was all going to work out once they rolled into Jerusalem but Jesus has just told them that's, that's where we're headed. We're almost there to the city of destiny. And everything that the prophets have written about me is going to come to pass. And that meant for them, they were absolutely sure of it, a stake in the action. I mean, if Jesus is going to be coronated, if Jesus is going to become the king, then this has to mean something pretty good for them at the very least. So their interest is piqued when Jesus said this. Their excitement is building. But then Jesus tells them, What's really going to happen? I'll be delivered into the hands of Roman power. And I'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And then I will be flogged and I will be killed. And on the third day, I'll rise. Everything, everything is backwards. Everything is out of place. Precisely the reverse of what they had expected. I mean, here they are, so close to Jerusalem, so close to this, this glorious dream of revolution that they can almost taste it, and Jesus starts talking like this again. They have been with Jesus for so long, and even though they have been with Jesus for so long, this is the truth. They had completely failed to absorb the scandalous reversal that Jesus is talking about. They had been with Jesus for so long. They had heard him talk again and again and again about the kingdom. And they had completely failed to absorb the scandalous reversals that are at the heart of his rule and kingdom. And Luke, 
goes out of his way to make sure that we know it. He says it three different ways. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. It was like Jesus was speaking in riddles to them, and they didn't have the key to make it out. And I know that it's easy for us to kind of look back on them and wonder, how could they be so obtuse? I mean, Jesus is using really plain language to describe exactly what's going to happen to him that week. But church, it's not as if they were dense in ways that we aren't. They had insight into what Jesus was about. They had insight into the way that that Jesus talked. They knew sometimes he talked in parables. They knew sometimes he just spoke out plainly. But they cannot grasp what he's saying for one reason, and that is that, frankly, this is not the Jesus that they want to take them into Jerusalem that week. This is not the Jesus they want. They had pinned their hopes on an entirely different outcome than the one that Jesus has just described. They they want a Jesus who wins in the way that they want Jesus to win. The Jesus they wanted would lead a revolt against Roman power and he would throw out the corrupt religious leadership and he would establish peace right then and right there for God's people. They don't have a category for any of this suffering stuff, this complete reversal of their expectations. And so they simply do not have the ears to hear it. They don't have the eyes to see it. And I think, honestly, that this is a great place for us to find ourselves in this story. I think it's really easy for people like you and me to edit Jesus down to the version of Jesus that we are comfortable with, the one that we want, as opposed to the one who really is. I mean, certainly in the wider cultural world, there is a pressure to do that, even an acceptance to do that. Certainly in wider circles, in many circles, it's okay, more than okay, to think of Jesus as a revolutionary or to think of Jesus as a mystic or to think of Jesus as a really great teacher or a really great leader of people. And, of course, there's truth about all of those things, but to reduce Jesus to one of those things and to ignore everything else about his life and everything else about his teaching that doesn't fit one of those molds is to have a pretend Jesus. A lesser one than we see in the Gospels. A tame Jesus who doesn't really challenge us all that much. And I don't think it's just the wider world that does this. I think we do this in the church too. I think we create a pretend Jesus every time We emphasize one part of Jesus' teaching that we may be inclined towards and ignore another part of his teaching we may not be. We might love Jesus' teaching on prayer, but want to gloss over what he says about our money and our possessions and what that means to us. We might be drawn to his teaching on sexual morality, but gloss over what he has to say about really caring for the poor. But to do this is to create a pretend Jesus for ourselves, one that usually looks a lot like whoever's doing the creating, as opposed to the full-blooded Jesus who really is, who happens to be the one that we and the whole world really need. Or maybe, you know, we're just, we're more like the disciples 
more like exactly how they are in this moment. Maybe it is the suffering that we're not really comfortable with. Maybe it's the suffering that we don't like. In particular, Jesus' insistence that if we follow him, we'll take up crosses to follow him. Maybe we're not sure, like the Apostle Paul put it in the New Testament lesson that Matt uh, read for us this morning, maybe we're not sure that we really want to share in Christ's sufferings. Maybe it's because we see suffering as a sign of weakness, or maybe it's because we think that if we suffer it means that we've done something wrong or that we won't appear as squared away as we want to appear to people. So we avoid it at all costs. We try to get through it as quick as we can. We certainly don't want to be led into it like Jesus promises he will do. But to miss this, to miss this thing about Jesus is to miss the Jesus who really is. It is to be blind to what Jesus does again and again and again. You can see it from the beginning of the Gospels to the end. Jesus moves to the places of our deepest suffering. He flies to the places of our deepest shame. It's like he's on the lookout for it, and he moves towards shame, and he moves towards sin, and he moves towards pain, and he moves towards suffering in order to bear it, because that is what his self-giving love looks like. That's what this journey to Jerusalem is all about in the first place. That's why he sets his face toward Jerusalem. He is entering into the sin and suffering of a fallen world and into the sin and suffering of a fallen people in order to take all of that, all of that despair and all of that misery and all of that suffering on his back to one day just drain it completely of its destructive power. And church, there is no other Jesus than the one who does that. And to follow him is to be a people who move towards the same kinds of things, who move toward pain and who move toward suffering with open hands, ready to take the hit, ready to feel that profound sense of dislocation, ready to share in Jesus' suffering for others. And a big part of growing up as a Christian is not being blind to this. It's opening our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is and absorbing this deeply scandalous reversal that his death and resurrection is to our normal way of doing things. Church, that's the kind of life that we have been made for. And living it leads to the kind of hope the world was made for. So, with the blindness of the disciples paramount in our minds, Luke, with this beautiful touch of irony, (laughs) he tells us what happens next. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. That sentence alone is enough to tell us that this is a man who is on the margins, a man considered in his world to be an expendable with no attachments. If he owned more than the clothes that he was wearing, it would be a great surprise. He is completely dependent on the goodwill of others just to sustain his life every single day. He hears this large crowd go by and he asks someone what it meant and someone tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now we don't know what this man knew about Jesus. We don't know what it is that he has heard about Jesus. Maybe he's heard 
through the grapevine about what Jesus did many years ago in his own hometown in Nazareth, how he stood up in the synagogue and took out the Isaiah scroll and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. I mean, maybe this guy knew that Jesus had read that and then sat down and said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We don't know what this guy knows. We don't know what it is that this guy has heard. But Luke very much wants us to know what it is that this blind man sees. He yells out like the lepers did in the story that we looked at last week. He yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No one, no one has called Jesus son of David in public until this man does. He can see. And Luke tells us that when he does this, those who were in front of him rebuked him. They told him to be quiet, essentially, to stop bothering Jesus. We, we don't know who they were, but it's clear that they too were blind in their own way. If they think that Jesus doesn't want to hear from the guy on the margins, if they think that Jesus doesn't want to hear from people on the outside, that he is too important or too eminent or too busy to hear from the lonely and the unloved and the outsider, if that's what they think, then they too have not yet absorbed that great scandalous reversal that Jesus' good news brings to this broken world. And we need to hear it again, and we cannot hear it enough, especially if we feel on the margins and lonely and unloved and on the outside. Jesus moves towards us. So fortunately, this man doesn't care what those in the crowd think. He yells out again, and this time Jesus hears him and asks for him to be brought to him. And when this man is standing in front of Jesus, Jesus asks him a question. (laughs) What do you want me to do for you? Man, I love it. I love it when Jesus asks questions like this. Questions that he already knows the answer to. (laughs) I mean, it's not like anyone who's standing around is wondering what this blind man would want from Jesus. But for Jesus to ask it, for Jesus to speak dignity to this man, for Jesus to elicit this, is for this man to be able to speak what is true in him, what is on his heart, what it is that he believes, what it is that he needs, what it is that he knows about Jesus. And so Jesus asks him, And this man says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Let me be able to see again. To which Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he can see. And Luke tells us his response is to get up on the road and follow Jesus as a disciple. It's beautiful. It is this beautiful glimpse into the full healing and the full joy and the full peace that Jesus will bring when he returns to finish making everything new. It is like this fruit of Jesus' resurrection life that gets picked and brought into the present. And these two stories, side by side, one about 
the sighted who are blind and one about the blind who can see deeply. These are invitations. These stories are invitations to people like us. Who do we see when we look at Jesus? Are we content with a pretend Jesus, a composite Jesus that we're comfortable with, that looks an awful lot like us, that leads us only to the places where we want to go and nowhere else? Or are we willing and ready to see him as he really is? The one who set his face to Jerusalem. The one who moves into our pain. The one who moves into our loneliness and shame and suffering and sin in order to bear it. Who moves with a glad heart into the places in our lives that we have hidden that finally need forgiveness and healing. And are we willing to see that following him means we will be called to do the same for the good of others and for the good of the world? Because church, that's the Jesus who really is. And that is the Jesus who is the hope of this world. Lord, let us recover our sight. Let me pray for us. Father, by your spirit, I ask that you would just help us to hear this question again and again and again from Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? (laughs) And that we would have eyes that are open to see exactly who he is. The one who moves into pain and suffering and shame and sin and sadness in order to take them away and give healing and forgiveness and restoration and light and life. Father, help us to ask, recover our sight. Do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.